Psalm 100, page 592 in your pew Bible. His strength, his steadfast love endures forever. A psalm for giving thanks. Make a joyful sound and noise unto the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter the gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name, for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever, and his faithfulness to all generations. Thanks be to God. Amen. Terry, would you come and pray, please? Always risky when the, the blind guy gets up front. <laughs> I'm concerned, <clears throat> and God has burdened my heart um, that as we come to pray, Lord, that uh, uh, that we didn't come this morning to get, but we came this morning to give. So let's pray. Father, we, we are humbled um, that to come into your presence may come with singing and rejoicing and realizing the incredible price that you have paid for us, that our salvation was not a free pass to heaven, but Lord, that becoming part of your family and coming to worship you this morning. Lord, we are reminded. And scripture says, and let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. So Father, may our testimony and our lives reflect your presence, not just in this hour, Lord, but in the week where we live out our faith. We thank you, Father, for blessing us, keeping us, and most of all, for redeeming us, as we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please, Hanson, would you pray, please? For those words, to be still and know. Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much to give us this quiet place where we can join together in one mind and one spirit, praising you and worshiping you, Lord. Please, if there is anyone, Lord, in this room who doesn't know your Son as their personal Lord and Savior, Lord, quicken their hearts, peel the scales off their eyes that they will reach out and seek your son and accept him as their savior. Lord, we have seen sadness and hurt 
and so many miracles in the past weeks in our family here. Lord, thank you for walking with each of us. Please, Lord, keep us next to you and help us to keep our eyes focused on you, not in the good, just the good, but in the bad and in the ugly of life. Lord, be our guide. Help us to be your light in this world. We ask all these things in your son's precious name. Amen. Please be seated. Good morning, EBC. It's an interesting singing the words to that song as I'm about to preach. I'm at a loss for words. If you caught that, but somebody caught it. <laughs> uh, just a quick announcement that I didn't get a chance to make at the start of the service. Uh, if you saw uh, the post yesterday, uh, I will be putting on a membership class. Uh, coming up in the next few weeks, and I have put a sign-up sheet uh, right behind the door, the, the little bookshelf. Um, so if you're interested in learning more about membership, uh, it is just a class for that purpose, to learn about membership. It is a prerequisite to membership, uh, but it does not obligate you in any way to join uh, just by taking the class. So if you're interested in that, uh, please do sign up. Well, uh, we continue in our series, Who is God, this morning, where we have been considering the person and works of our great God. And last week, we looked at the holiness of God. Uh, we saw that what it means that God is holy is that he is separate. He is transcendent above the created universe. Not that he is impersonal and not involved in the universe, but merely that he is a whole other category. He is unique in his being. He is set apart in that sense. And we saw that holiness likewise refers to his moral purity, the perfect purity of his being. And this morning we will consider another attribute that is very closely related to the holiness of God, and that is the justice of God. Uh, we live in a day and time where there seems to be a war against the dictionary. Uh, there is what seems to be a large movement to change definitions. What is a man? What is a woman? Uh, these are things that I never imagined would be questioned. I could have never guessed that in the 21st century there would be enough people around the world calling for these changes, that they would even affect terminology used in medical fields. And even to such a large scale as the British Medical Association, which changed its policies and directed its 160,000 members to stop using the term mother-to-be when speaking of mothers-to-be, and to instead refer to them as pregnant people to be more inclusive and not offend, quote-unquote, pregnant men. And the same circles perpetuating these ideologies have also 
almost entirely lost any understanding of the word justice. And so we have seen the rise of the social justice movements all around the world, especially across our nation. And we have seen the push for the adoption of critical race theory and intersectionality in our schools and so on. Those supposedly crying out for justice have but only paved the way for some of the most lawless environments in our nation today through legislation which they would call just, such as defund police. When you really get down to the bottom of all these things, you come to find that the war is not against the dictionary as much as it is against God himself. Against true justice. Against biblical righteousness. And so it's important for us to know how we ought to define such terms like justice. In a world where we could have picked up a dictionary yesterday and come to find that a certain definition has been changed today. We Christians can be confident that though society at large may change definitions in their books, our book, the Bible, is the final authority on everything that it speaks to and defines because it is God-breathed. It is without error, and its truths cannot be changed. Though the world keeps making that push to change definitions, we stand on the solid rock of truth that is the Scriptures. And so when it comes to our understanding of justice, the first thing that we have to realize is that God is justice. Justice comes from God. Justice should be defined in light of God, governed pursuant to God's word, and dispensed in accordance to God's will. And so this morning, let us consider the justice of God. Please turn in your copy of God's word with me to the book of Psalms. In Psalm 7, verses 11 through 17 will be our text of consideration this morning. Psalm 7, and that's page 531 in the Pew Bible. And if you're a visitor this morning and you don't own a Bible, we would love for you to feel free to take a copy of that Pew Bible as our gift to you. There are also some welcome notepads near the entrance that you can take, and there's an information card that you can fill out and slip into the offering box. We would love the opportunity to reach out and follow up with you. And now let's read verses 11 through 17 of Psalm 7, where God's inerrant, infallible, and sufficient word which he has spoken to us here through the pen of King David reads, God is a righteous judge, and a God who feels indignation every day. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Behold, 
The wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head, and on his own skull his violence descends. I will give to the Lord the thanks due to his righteousness, and I will sing praise to the name of the Lord, the Most High. Let's pray. Father, in a world full of confusion, Lord, would you give us clarity? Would you give us an understanding of your timeless truths, which you have gifted to us? In the scriptures. And Father, for your name's sake, Lord, would you be pleased to work through the weakness of this man? For your glory and your honor. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the 2014 National Conference by Ligonier Ministries, which is a theology conference, during a Q&A session, a written question was submitted to the panel consisting of five theologians and a moderator in an auditorium with about 5,000 people. The question was asked, Since God is slow to anger and patient, Then why, when man first sinned, was his wrath and punishment so severe and long-lasting? Immediately, theologian and pastor R.C. Sproul, in answering the question, calls an audible time out and passionately answers, This creature from the dirt defied the everlasting holy God after God had said, The day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And instead of dying that day, he lived another day and was clothed in his nakedness by pure grace and had the consequences of a curse applied for quite some time. But the worst curse would come upon the one who seduced him, whose head would be crushed by the seed of the woman. And then he asked rhetorically, And the curse was too severe? And then looking at the crowd of thousands, he raises his voice in an accusatory tone and cries out, What's wrong with you people? And concludes by saying, This is what's wrong with the Christian church today. We don't know who God is. And we don't know who we are. The right question is why wasn't it infinitely more severe? Close quote. And by the way, we have a mug with that quote in our house. And a sticker. And Sophie has a shirt. So now you know. 
So we think it's funny. It was a, certainly a funny moment. But it was also very true words spoken. And it is a reminder that when we question as unfair or dislike something that the Bible clearly teaches as an act or description of God's character, as if our conception of what seems to be right or just should actually be the truth instead, then the problem is clearly with us in our understanding of who God is, not with the Bible. And there have been many misconceptions of God throughout history that arise out of a questioning of the justice of God that are grounded in this lack of knowledge. For example, a good God would never send people to hell for all eternity for sins they they committed in a short lifespan. Or a loving God is an accepting God. He does not judge. This is also why some try to make the distinction and say that the God of the Old Testament is different than the God of the New. Because in the Old they say He is vengeful and full of wrath, but in the New He's full of grace and mercy. But that, beloved, is simply a misunderstanding of who God is as He has revealed Himself in the Bible. And so let's spend some time considering God's justice in our text, and I've divided this text into three headings. And so notice our first heading this morning, the judge of the world. The judge of the world. We read in verse 7, God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. Stop right there. The first thing I want you to note is that God is a judge. He is many things as described in the scriptures. He is king. He is Lord. He is our counselor, our helper. He is father. He is creator. He is all those things. But he is also a judge. He is the judge of the universe. He is governing over his entire creation as sovereign ruler, but also sits as its judge. But what is the standard? Every judge has a standard by which they bring judgment. A Pierce County judge sits on his judicial bench and brings about judgments on cases that are brought before his court based on a standard. For the Pierce County judge, that standard is the loss of the state of Washington and the loss of the United States of America. As a primary rule, the Constitution of the United States. But what about God? What is his standard? Is there a law that he must abide by to make judgments? Well, the answer is no. God, unlike earthly judges, is law unto himself. There is no law greater than God or anything above God that holds him responsible to any standard. And that's the most amazing news about the fact that God is a judge. Right? The, There have been many in world history who have tried to take the chair as governor, lawgiver, and judge with no balance of power. But these have always turned out to be tyrants. Tyrants who are hungry 
for power and are a law unto themselves in violation of the ultimate standard, God's standard. You look at the dictator of North Korea, a man who fancies himself a god, whose people are ruled and lorded over in accordance to his laws, judged according to his laws. But he does what he wants, even if it violates the same laws that all others in his nation are to follow. That is what you get when power corrupts and when somebody believes they are a law unto themselves. But we see this reality not just in high-profile rulers. We see this violation of justice even in our small courts. I worked as a sheriff's deputy in the state of Georgia in the state and superior courts for some time. And I have seen judges make bad judgments simply out of a flexing of their judicial muscles. One instance that I particularly recall, there was a defendant who had all the evidence in the world on his side. This was a bench trial, and so there was no jury, just the judge. And I thought to myself, wow, the state has no case whatsoever against this man. Even their own witness testified on behalf of the defendant. <clears throat> but this man had made the judge angry at a previous hearing. Had called him names or something like that. I don't recall. And the guy was a bit rough around the edges and had a history of earning his way to a free-to-him cold metal bed and three square meals at the county inn a few times. But after all the evidence had been heard and clearly showed that he was innocent, the judge came back and ruled against him. I was shocked. This judge was clearly abusing their power. And I felt bad that I had to put the guy in handcuffs and take him into custody. And later on, I may have given him some free legal advice and affirmed his sense of injustice. Uh, after I booked him in. But, but the point is, right? the judges in this world have a standard and can easily break that. But that is not the case with God. He is a law unto himself, but he is a perfect law, a good law, because all his laws are tied to his other attributes. You cannot separate God's justice from God's goodness. God's holiness. God's omniscience. God's omnipotence. All his ways are righteous and judge, are righteous and just, and good and loving and perfect. That is the best news about his justice. It's always good. It's always in perfect alignment with His holiness. It is righteous. Listen to R.C. Sproul again. Quote, No law is higher than the internal character of God. God Himself is the sumum bonum, meaning the highest good. He is the canon of all perfection, the norm of all ethics, the fountainhead of all goodness. There is nothing higher than God because there can be nothing higher than God, close quote. 
I probably should have done this earlier, but let's define some terms. What do we mean by righteousness? What do we mean by justice? What is the difference between righteousness and holiness? These are all terms that are so closely aligned to each other and can sometimes be used interchangeably as we see in Scripture. Here's how I think we can define them. We defined holiness last week in part as God's perfect moral purity in His being. Righteousness is to rightly act in accordance with a standard. So righteousness is to act in accordance with a standard. And God's righteousness in Scripture can be seen both as an internal righteousness and an external righteousness. Internal righteousness is very much similar to holiness. And this is where the line kind of crosses between the two terms. But here's a way of looking at it. God acts in a righteous way. That is his external righteousness. And we see that everything that he does is righteous. Everything he does is rightly done in accordance to a moral standard. Right? So he is externally righteous. And he is righteous internally because he is that standard. And that standard is due to the fact that he is holy. So you can see how the lines can get a little blurred there. But we are basically saying that everything that God does is morally good, morally right, morally correct, and perfect because He is morally perfect. And He cannot do anything but that which is perfectly morally good. So God's righteousness is the perfect moral standard from His own being. And his actions are always consistent with that standard, his character. Psalm 92:15, the Lord is upright. He is my rock, and there is no unrighteousness in him. There is no unrighteousness in him because he is upright. Therefore, he is righteous. Righteousness is uprightness. And justice we can define as the proper application of God's righteousness. So justice is the proper application of God's righteousness. And so the justice of God is His application or His carrying out of the demands of of his righteousness. And we would say that this is used in a forensic or legal sense. And the justice of God can be seen in two ways. Number one, he punishes evil. And number two, he rewards good. All in accordance with his righteousness, his moral standard. The law, which is a representation of his own character. So again, justice can be defined, or God's justice can be seen in two ways. Number one, he punishes evil. And number two, he rewards good. 
And so you may remember Romans 7, verse 12 from last week that says, The law is holy, the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. The law is the standard. Therefore, He, His own being, His own perfections, are the standard by which we will be judged. That's one of the things that we have to keep in mind, beloved. The standard, ultimately, in the end, is not a paper with words on it. It's not just a word, it's not just a law written down. In the end, the standard is Jesus Christ Himself, who is that perfect moral standard. And He will judge according to that standard. Psalm 75 7. It is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. Isaiah 33:22 The Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king. James 4:12 There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. And this by the way, his moral perfection and the rectitude of all his actions in accordance with his own character. That's why we read in the next portion of our main text in Psalm 7, verse 11. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. The word for indignation there means anger that is basically foaming at the mouth, enraged. To abhor. It's a very strong word. And Isaiah uses that same word to tell us who the object of his indignation is. Isaiah 66, 14. He shall show his indignation against his enemies. And so God has created the universe. He governs the universe. He sustains the universe. He gives and sustains life. He has created humans, human beings for a purpose. He has given us a law to govern us. A law that is written in each of our hearts. It is in our conscience. And by this law we will be judged. And so who is the enemy of God? Who is it that this verse speaks of as being the cause of God's indignation every day? It is those who are not born again and remain in their sin. Those who know the law of God and set themselves against it. Romans 8, 7. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. And so notice our second heading this morning. The pit of the wicked. The pit of the wicked. Verses 12 through 16 of Psalm 7. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Behold, the wicked 
man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head, and on his own skull his violence descends. If ever the saying, you're digging your own grave, applied, it is here. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword, and his bow is already bent and aimed. How does this not strike terror into people? It's because the natural mind is hostile to God. We can certainly ask the same question of Satan, right? How will he be foolish enough to make war against God? Does he not know how the book of Revelation ends? Yet in the end, he will wage war. That's what the scriptures say. And he will do so because of his hatred. It is foolishness. But he will dig out his pit and fall into it. Revelation 20, verses 7 through 11. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison. And will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea, and they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophets were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And then immediately after that, verse 11, then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. That's the great white throne of judgment. It's a terrifying reality. But it is a reality. And it must be so because God is righteous. And God is holy. And so he is just and must judge every act of rebellion against him. That is how opposed to sin he is. That is what his justice and holiness and righteousness demand. And so, friends, if you are here this morning and this is you, if you have not surrendered your life and are following Christ as your Lord and Master, then you will meet him as judge if you die in your sins. Here's the amazing thing about how this section in our psalm starts. Verse 12. If a man does not repent, there is hope. You don't have to stand before this great white throne of this perfect judge and face him in your sins. Mercy is offered. In the person and works of Jesus Christ. If you repent and believe the gospel and follow him. And so though we stand completely condemned on our own. Completely deserving of nothing but eternal punishment. Because we have violated his law. 
at every turn because of the sacrifice of Jesus, which fulfilled all righteousness and gave God the ability to justify sinners by giving us a foreign righteousness, the righteousness of Christ, we can say with the psalmist, as said in Psalm 103, verses 10 through 12, He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His steadfast love towards those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does He remove our transgressions from us. Some wonderful words that we sang this morning, and I bring those back to your attention. His robes for mine. God's justice is appeased. Jesus is crushed. And thus the Father's pleased. Christ drank God's wrath on sin, then cried, Tis done, sin's wage is paid. Propitiation one. That was the demand of God's justice. The death of the one, the only one for whom it could ever be said. treated unjustly. Now this is a psalm of lament. David is crying out to God that he bring justice upon his enemies who are sinfully persecuting him. And look at look back at verse 6 of this psalm, Psalm 7. It says, "Arise, O Lord, in your anger, Lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. And so we too face the reality of suffering injustice from those around us. That's one of the effects of living in a fallen world with billions of sinful human beings that live in, that live in relation to one another. <clears throat> Whether it be in court if we face an unrighteous judge, or whether it be our neighbor, our coworker, or close friend, there is much injustice in this world. And perhaps you, uh, sitting here this morning, are currently dealing with an act of injustice. How are you to deal with it? Uh, well, first, let me say, do what David did here. Pray. Pray and ask God, your Father, to help you to change the hearts of those who persecute you. I don't really recommend praying like David does here in verse 6. Arise, O Lord, and lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Imprecatory prayers have a place, but we should pray for our enemies. And the thing we should want the most for them is what we want the most for ourselves. 
that we should love our enemies us ourselves. And what we want the most for ourselves is our own salvation, do we not? And so we should pray that God would change the hearts of those who bring injustice upon us. But secondly, I would warn you against trying to seek out revenge or trying to bring down the hammer of justice by your own hand. Romans 12, 19 says pretty straightforwardly, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Leave it to the wrath of God. There is another comfort to be had in that verse. Though the wrath of God is a terrifying thing, that we don't even like to think of. It is a comfort to know that every single wrong done in this world will ultimately be avenged. Justice, though it might be delayed here on this side of eternity, will ultimately be fully carried out. Thomas Watson said, God's justice may be as a sleeping lion, but the lion will wake at last. Close quote. And so, beloved, do not avenge yourself. Instead, perhaps, you might have to turn the other cheek. Or perhaps you should use the means God has provided for you to seek out justice here on this earth. That is one of the main purposes for government. It is an institution by God to maintain justice in accordance with God's laws, in accordance with righteousness. And so Romans 13 verses 3 and 4 tell us, For rulers, rulers are not a terror to good conduct but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he, meaning the government, does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Now again, we do have corrupt governments, sure. But thankfully, this is still one of the best countries in the world. Where you can still get justice. From the courts. There are good judges out there, and I have worked with a number of them who take their oaths seriously and do justice. And so the justice system is given to you from God as a means of possibly getting relief from your injustices. However, if your injustice is coming from another believer, well, that's another story. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 5 and 7, Can it be that there's no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? Close quote. And of course, this isn't, this isn't all-encompassing. 
I believe that Paul is speaking more in civil terms. If there is a criminal injustice, then that might be a whole other issue that may require a believer to take another believer before the courts. I think Paul is speaking of lawsuits, which are of a civil matter. And so we have prayer. We have the courts. If you're suffering injustice from another believer, you have the church. And again, even if you do not receive justice on this side of eternity, know that justice will ultimately prevail. Justice delayed is not justice denied, beloved. Proverbs 21.15, when justice is done, it is a joy to the righteous, but terror to evildoers. Psalm 37, verses 27 through 29. Turn away from evil and do good, so shall you dwell forever. For the Lord loves justice. He will not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever, but the children of the wicked shall be cut off. The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell upon it forever. And so God's justice is carried out in the punishment of sin but also in the rewarding of righteousness. And so, beloved, we're called to work for Him. We will will be rewarded for our work. Everything you do on this side of eternity that is done in faith, that you do in the advancing of His kingdom, no matter how minute you think it is, even if it's just you being faithful in your secular job, in the secret place of your own heart, that will be rewarded. Because you are being faithful with what He has given you. And so 2 Timothy 4.8, Paul says, Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved His appearing. Therefore, lastly, I want you to notice our third heading this morning, the proper response. The proper response. What should be our response to God's justice? Even when it is delayed for us in some circumstance here on earth. Our proper response to God's justice should be worship. Verse 17, Psalm 7. I will give to the Lord the thanks due to His righteousness, and I will sing praise to the name of the Lord, the Most High. And so, beloved, God is just in everything He does. And though we may suffer injustice in this world, we will be vindicated in the one to come. And so our proper response should be worship and never resentment. That is certainly a sin that we can easily fall into, isn't it? We might face some sort of injustice 
and then blame God for it. That's a dark place to be in. And there are many things that we can often lend our minds to blame God for, aren't there? And bring a charge against Him for injustice. And so, beloved, I just want to ask you this morning, and I really want to challenge you here, what is it, if anything, in your life that you hold against God? What is it that you look at and think, this is unfair? And though you might not have overtly blamed him for it, in your heart, you point your finger at heaven and say, and it's your fault. It's a hard one to examine yourself in, but you should. And then repent. Because we have zero right and zero ground to charge God with any kind of injustice. Deuteronomy 32.4 The rock, his work is perfect for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity just and upright is he. Romans 11.33 Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Everything he has done, he has done justly, righteously. And if you are a believer, it will work out for your good one way or another. And all for His glory. William Plummer, who was a United States Senator in the early 1800s said, God is indeed on a throne of grace, but that is no less glorious and suited to inspire reverence than a throne of judgment. Close quote. May this glorious truth, the justice of God, invigorate our worship and reverence towards our great God. And may we come to a place in our faith where we readily give an answer in the affirmative to the question that Abraham posed in Genesis 18, verse 25. Shall not the judge of all the earth, do what is just. Let's pray. Father, we pray, Lord, that you would search our hearts. That you would bring to our minds, Lord, anything that we may be holding on to where we charge you with 
lack of justice. Father, we thank you that no one on this earth has ever been treated unjustly to the degree and the reality that Christ did on our behalf. And that because of him, Lord, we who still struggle with sin can be covered in his righteousness and stand before your throne pardoned. And we can live this life clinging to the promise that we will be perfected. And so, Father, we thank you that you created this plan to bring about redemption in such a marvelous way that you do not violate your justice. So we thank you that you are not like any of these tyrant rulers that we have known of in the history of the world. And that we can with confidence say and know that the judge of all the world will do what is right. Father, help us to write these truths in our hearts. And we thank you, and we praise you, and we love you. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.